go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Genesis. Um, we uh, have just uh, re-entered uh, our trek through the book of Genesis after taking a couple years off after the first 11 chapters. Now we're going to be looking at chapters 12 through 20 uh, through, uh, through the summer and uh, into, into early fall just a little bit. So I don't know if you enjoy hiking or trail walking or uh, just going on a walk in the woods, whatever you want to call it, but uh, sometimes you come across a stream and, you know, sometimes you can be kind of curious where those waters actually go, right? Uh, maybe not very far, <laughs> depending on the stream. Um, there's a neat place in Wyoming along the Continental Divide um, where a stream comes to a place that's called Two Ocean Pass. And if you look on a map, Two Ocean Pass is, uh, is a decent body of water. It's not massive, but it's large enough. Um, but just north of what's called Two Ocean, Two Ocean Pass, there's a place called the parting of the waters. And it's just like what you might think it is. Uh, a stream comes to a point where the waters part. And uh, 3,000 and some odd miles later, some of those waters uh, make their way down to the Gulf of Mexico and ultimately into the Atlantic Ocean. Well, if some of those droplets of water go the other direction west, they're going to end up in the Pacific Ocean some, I don't know, it was 13, 1,500 miles later, some point like that. We typically think in larger bodies of water, you know, lakes, rivers, streams, that sort of thing. But if you were to stand at this, you know, crick, you might call it, um, it's small enough, probably large enough that you couldn't hop over it. But stepping on a couple of stones... Uh, you could walk across it pretty easily. And uh, depending on the flow of water, uh, at some point, it might even be dry enough to just walk right across. I mean, it really could be the stuff of a kid's movie. You know, you got two droplets of water that are with the flow in the main flow of this stream. And you got two characters that come from it. And each one of them, you know, you, you have the storyline of traveling their adventure to the Gulf of Mexico and I guess I'm reverse for you guys. It'll be this way, kind of coming down this way to the Gulf of Mexico and this way out to the uh, Pacific Ocean and whole storylines that could go with it. But you got things like stones on the bottom of the riverbed, the creek bed that affect the flow of water. And you always wonder like, oh, how does how do these drops go here and that drop go over there? And maybe I'm overthinking it. I probably am. Although somebody with more... Uh, a greater science mind could uh, think about it and not overthink about it, or not overthink it, uh, but actually learn quite a bit from it. What I'm getting at is sometimes our choices are like that. Uh, our choices in our life kind of flow to a point where if we go east, if you will, or right in that moment, it might lead our life toward one direction over here. But if we make a different kind of decision, it might, it would lead our life in an entirely different direction on the other side. You think about the decisions in our lives that led us to the point that we are today. You look back in your life and you think, oh, there were some decisions in my life that were, by God's grace, really good decisions. I had other decisions in my life that maybe weren't so great. And in the Lord's sovereignty, he's got you where you are here today. None of us can do anything with what's happened uh, in the past. What we can do is we can address where we're at today and think about with, with prayer and uh, help from the body of Christ and the word of God and think, 
what are the decisions that we need to be making now? Which way are they going to lead us? Two droplets of water. One could go this way. One could lead you the other way and end up in very different trajectories, right? Very different places. When we read the Bible and we're looking at uh, these narratives like this, it's important for us to think that or to be reminded that while we're reading about Abraham and Abram and we're reading about Lot today and some kings and we're reading about characters in the Bible, real life people who existed in real history. This is God's narrative. This is God's story. Now, if you hear me use the word story, we sometimes think of fictional stories, fictitious stories, but we don't mean that when we're talking about the word of God. This is a part of literature in the Bible called historical narrative, which means that we're, it's true. We're reading about real historical events that occurred, took place. And when, when we read about historical narrative, um, we're seeing early in Genesis that God's grand truth-filled narrative uh, has never found the right sort of hero of the story, if you will, up to this, up to this point in Genesis 12, 13, 14, where we're at. What do I mean by that? Well, you think of Eve and Adam. You think of Noah, right? None of them were sinless in what God had called them to do. And, and we're only just into Abram's story. Now, Abram is, 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 is maybe the most talked about Old Testament character. Uh, Abram, Moses, highlighted in the New Testament as great, a great man of faith. And yet, our, 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 the narrative that we read last week opened up talking about Abram went on his way. And it's not much longer. It's not very long into the story that Abram tells a half-truth to try to get out of a situation. Remember we said last week, a half-truth is a what? A whole lie. That's right. A half-truth is a whole lie. And so we need to remember that despite Adam's imperfection, God is writing his story, his true narrative. God initiated and called Abram to a life of faith and trust. God made a promise to Abraham and God will keep his promise because God is true to his word. He cannot be untrue to his word or he would not be God. God is true to his purposes. And so this morning, as we dive back into the story, we're going to see that our choices like two drops of water that each end up in very different oceans reveal whether we're seeking to live in accordance with the promise, whether or not we're living life according to the promise. If we're to live in accordance with the promise, we need to apply faith to prioritize God's purposes in our choices. I'll say that again. If we're going to live according to life, according to the promise, we must apply faith to prioritize God's purposes in our choices. Now that seems easy enough, but as we see with Adam and Eve and Noah and everyone else that was even briefly mentioned these previous chapters, and we see with Abraham, and we will continue seeing chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter until one man comes. It's easy to talk about applying faith to prioritize God's purposes in our decisions. 
It's, it's easy to nod and think, yeah, that's right. That's good. We need to do that. But every one of us would raise our hand and say, I do it imperfectly. I do it wrongly. I miss the boat. Sometimes unintentionally, sometimes quite intentionally. And so when that happens, when we fail and we will, you've got to remember one that you've got to believe that God's discipline is for your good. And this is what we see in the beginning of chapter 13. We touched on it yesterday. We saw this last week when we see Abraham, this man called out by God to leave what he knew, right? To leave the known for the unknown. Life with his family in Ur, this big city in Ur, to follow the Lord into this unknown, which was a life of faith. And so then Abraham faces this circumstance that challenged his faith. Remember, God said, go to a land that I will show you. And he went. That means he didn't have all the answers and he went. Well, then he came to a circumstance where he was challenged. He's perplexed. What do I do here? Oh, well, what he does is he he reverts back to his self-reliant reasoning. And he did the only thing that made sense to his human reasoning, which was an affront to God. He didn't trust God. He wasn't walking in faith. He made a momentary calculated, mind you, calculated decision. He justified his thought process and his actions, and he sinned against the Lord, against his wife, ultimately against Pharaoh. Rather than trusting God who said, I'm going to lead you. I'm going to tell you where to go and I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for you. Right. Genesis 13, two through four. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock in silver and in gold. Now, this is after He's been called out. Essentially, this godly man has been called out by ungodly people for living in an ungodly way. Isn't that ironic? To be called out, rebuked, if you will, by ungodly people for not living in the way that is right. And so they send him packing from Egypt back up north toward Jerusalem. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel, which is a little bit north of Jerusalem, to the place where he had his tent at in the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at first to the Lord. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So here we are. Abram's rich. He's rich in livestock. He's recently been humbled uh, with many traveling miles to think about his sinful choice. You ever been there? You realize that you've sinned. You can't go back and fix it. You can't go back and change the past. But now what do you have? Well, you have to ride it out. You've got to sort of, if you will, take your lumps. Maybe it affected a relationship. Maybe it just affected the trajectory of your life. Maybe it affected your finances. Maybe it affected something in your work or something with your neighbor. You can't go back and just fix it. You can't wave a magic wand over it. And everything's all better. So now you've got, if you will, with Abram, these traveling miles to contemplate, to think, to consider. Well, he comes back to Bethel where he first called upon the name of the Lord and he calls upon the name of the Lord again. So what did he do when he called upon the name of the Lord? That's Genesis's way. That's Moses's way of telling us that he repented. He repented. He believed that God's discipline was for his good and for God's purposes. So he repented in worship, calling upon the name of the Lord. 
In the words of 1 John 1, 9, Abram confessed his sin and he found forgiveness from God and he was restored. Abram didn't simply dust himself off and try to change. He called on the name of the Lord. Brother and sister, I want to encourage you. If you're in a place where repentance is called for, don't avoid it. Don't avoid the Lord because you feel guilty for your sin. That's what Satan wants you to do. You got to believe that God's discipline, God's reproof, God's conviction is his love for you, training you in righteousness, disciplining you, which is training in righteousness. Believe that it is for your good. Why? Because God is good. Believe that it is for your good. Abram was humbled. He called upon the name of the Lord, which means to live a life of worship and trust, to trust God for who he is, a righteous yet merciful sovereign Lord who faithfully keeps his promises even when we're faithless. God keeps his promises even when we're faithless. Now that doesn't mean there are no consequences to how we love our lives, but God's purposes will not be thwarted because of your sin or my sin. Aren't you glad for that? I'll tell you, that would be a lot of pressure to carry around. Some of you carry that pressure. If I mess up, if I sin, I'm going to mess it all up. You're not that powerful. You should be thankful for this. You should be very happy for this. Now, you shouldn't run to the other extreme and say, oh, it doesn't really matter because God's got it. And well, that'd be another extreme that the Apostle Paul warns us about as well. But listen to what some passages tell us about discipline, right? It's Proverbs is speaking of a father who gives wisdom to his child, ultimately talking about the Lord. Proverbs 6, 23, for the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light. The reproofs of discipline are the way of life. Proverbs 10, 17 says, similarly, whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life, but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. Do you want to be a man or a woman or a young boy or a young young girl who is love, who loves the Lord and is following the Lord learns from your sin, recognizes that it's okay to call it sin because that's what it is. We're just agreeing with God. Turns from it back to the Lord who loves you and is able to help others know how to live in that same kind of way. Or do you want to be the kind of man or woman or boy or girl who says, I'm not going to listen to reproof or correction or discipline. I'm not going to hear somebody tell me that I need to change the way that I'm living. The Bible says, if you do that, you will lead other people's astray, other people astray. That's a heavy call for parents. Parents, how does the way that you're living lead those in your family? To the Lord or away from the Lord? How do you respond when you're chastised, called out in love for your sin? Whether it's in your heart of hearts between you and the Lord or by someone in your family or by someone in the church. So I'm not going to listen to that. Who are they to tell me what to do? The Bible says it's foolishness and that you will lead others astray. I don't think you want to do that. 
the path to life in accordance with living according to the promises found by heeding God's discipline. Hebrews 12.10 carries it even further to say that God disciplines for our good. Listen to this. In order that we might share in his holiness. Nobody except for Jesus came out of the womb like I got holiness conquered. I got this figured out. I know how to live perfectly. Nobody, not one of us. God disciplines us so that we might increasingly learn how to share in his holiness. You might be thinking, well, I'm good. I grew to here. I'm good. I don't, I don't need to grow any further. I'm happy where I'm at. I really don't want to get to know too many other people. I really don't want people to get in my business. I'm good. I'm good. Oh, the things that you might be missing out, that you are missing out on. The aspects of living and sharing God's holiness that are such a blessing. Right? Never perfect, but growing in holiness. What a gift from the Lord. What a wonderful uh, vision for our life and a call for for us to strive for things to be to be living for seeking with our whole heart. Matthew 6 says, seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. All these other things will be added to you. So in those moments, there's a parting of the waters. Where you sense the true conviction of the Lord. It's not a question about whether or not you understand, right? What's right or what's wrong or what the Lord is leading you to. There's a a sense in which you're going to go this way in belief or you're going to go this way in unbelief. And that decision point can lead you to do two different, two very different places in your relationship with the Lord. So I want to ask you, are you being or have you been disciplined by the Lord? And are you applying faith to that to believe what the Bible says that it is for your good so that you might share in God's holiness? You know, there's a certain portion of my Christian testimony that specifically recalls God's discipline in my life. I was in a season of turning. I had turned from the Lord. I was living in rampant selfishness and I was miserable. You're like, well, serves you right. Well, it did serve me right. Hell serves me right. But because God was interested in my sharing in his holiness, God graciously disciplined me for a long time. And I was miserable until I repented. I felt bad for a long time. And then I repented. There's a difference between feeling bad or feeling guilty versus repenting. Returning to your first love and experiencing the joy that God has for you in unhindered fellowship through Jesus. Now, as we read a story here, sometimes we read parts of the Bible where uh, there are commands that are given. Uh, We call those imperatives where the writer is writing a letter to a church and he says, now do this, now do this, don't do this, do that. Well, when we read Old Old Testament or historical narrative in particular, one of the ways that the Lord teaches us is through things like comparison and contrast. And that's part of what we're going to see today, right? Um, 
we're comparing and contrasting the different choices people make. And so we learn God's purposes by seeing who and what he blesses and why. Now, mind you, God called Abram out of God's free choice to call Abram. God didn't just call Abram because Abram was the right guy for the project, the right guy for the mission. No, he had to send him from heaven for that. Look at verses 5 through 18 with me, and we're going to begin to see this contrast between Abram and Lot. Genesis 13, verse 5. I'll read 5 through 7, comment a little bit, and then we'll read the rest. And Lot, who went with Abraham, had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. So you kind of see this tension that's building in what we're reading. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdmen, herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So God had already begun to bless Abram and his family with many flocks and many herds and many tents. Lots of people in their family that were traveling together and so much, in fact, that it, it, the land couldn't support them both. And the herdsmen see it and they start quarreling over who should get the best pasture for their flocks and their herds. So Abram sees the problem. He anticipates what's coming. He knows that there's already disunity in the in the ranks And having learned from his previous experience, remember, he's just leaned back on his own human wisdom and he's made his own decisions. And he went, oh, that didn't go well. He came back and he repented. And now he's in another perplexing situation. So he's he's learned from his own devices. I'm sorry. He's learned from leaning on his own devices. But now Abram trusts the Lord and offers Lot the choice. Then Abram said to Lot, verse 8, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left, I'll go to the right. If you take the right, I'll go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes. And he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord like the land of Egypt, like the direction of, uh, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, this is, again, in a TV show or a movie, you get this, this swelling music that's kind of eerie and tells you something's going to be happening. Sodom and Gomorrah had not yet been destroyed, <clears throat> but that tells us something. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. And so they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley. And he moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now, listen, there's a lot of time that transpires in some of these narratives. And so what's important for us to understand is that through the words we see, through the knowledge that we have in the text, the Lord is teaching us something. Not every detail is in these narratives. But what we need to know in order to understand what the Lord has for us is here. And so what we're seeing is this highlight. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Lot chose to go that way. Then the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, 
Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and he came and he settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. There he worshiped the Lord. If we're going to live life according to the promise, resting on the Lord's wisdom rather than our own, you need to be a peacemaker as one who trusts God. You see, when Abram and his family came to, uh, came to Egypt before, rather than go into Egypt with Sarai, who was his wife, he, he publicly, his PR campaign went into, you know, you're my half-sister mode, which is true, Genesis 20 tells us. She was his half-sister. So it was a half-truth. But even before that, if you back up, the Lord uh, Abram comes to a land where he thinks there's a famine in the land. I don't know how God's going to provide for me. That's when he goes south to Egypt. He should have trusted the Lord where the Lord had him even at that point. So here he is again. The land can't support us both. And he says to Lot, Lot, look, there's enough for all of us. Okay, you pick the direction you want to go. By all accounts, Abram was Lot's senior. He was his uncle. He'd, he was God's chosen man to lead the family. He should have had first choice in what land to pick. But he gave the choice to Lot. And Lot, rather than deferring, right? Lot could have looked up, seen all of the land and said, man, this over here, this looks like the choicest land. Abram, you should go this way. And I'll still be fine to go over here. But Lot lifted up his eyes and he chose for himself. There's a contrast Abram was trusting God for his provision at this point, which he did not do before. Now he's trusting God for his provision. And because his aim was to see uh, that God's purposes are carried out, he chose being a godly, a God-honoring peacemaker over the choicest land. He proactively chose peacemaking because of what he had learned. Now he's trusting God. And he says to Lot, choose where you want to go and I'll go the other way. And so that's what happened. See this contrast. Let's learn from it. Lot's choice was for himself. As I said, he did exactly what Abram told him to. In one sense, he, he, he maybe he didn't do it wrong because Abram told him to. Well, he had the choice. The question is, when you have the choice, what are you going to do with the choice? Someone who gives you a choice between left or right, up or down, this relationship or that relationship. What are you going to do with the choice? Are you going to choose for yourself? Or are you going to prioritize God's purposes for your life? Are you going to prioritize God's purposes for those you have the opportunity to influence? Will you learn from the way that God has lovingly disciplined you in your past? Learn from the mistakes and the sins of yourself and from others? And relationally be proactive in peacemaking.
Bob chooses the best land. He started this downward trajectory. Why? Because he's choosing for himself. Lands and flocks and herds, oh my. <laughs> All the way down to the sinful city of Sodom. Now, let me tell you, uh, they're, they're at the top. They're, they're north of Jerusalem. He had to travel a long way to get down to Sodom. And the text is intentional. The Lord is intentional to communicate. He went as far as Sodom. There's something intriguing about being with the people who are wicked, who are ungodly and lots. Wanted to be there. And he put himself there. He, he failed to prioritize God's purposes. One drop traveled east toward a cesspool of sin and selfishness while the other traveled toward God's provision and God's way of living, prioritizing God's purposes. Now, the interesting thing about Lot is that we would say he's a believer. The Bible calls Lot righteous, righteous Lot. Uh, in fact, so we have the, this picture here of a Christian choosing not to live in accordance with the promises because he didn't prioritize God's purposes, right? And so he faces these dire consequences for this. This isn't a surprise to us. We just saw it happen with Abraham. I'm sure you've seen it maybe in your life at some point. I know I have in mine. But Second Peter 7 and 8 gives us this insight into God's grace in Lot's life that still allows the consequences of his actions to have their effect in Lot's life. Peter tells us in Second Peter 2, 7 and 8, he says, Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. Listen, friends, he saw Sodom. He saw this lush land. He chose for himself. He went as far as Sodom and he got in there. And he was like, man, this is where life is happening. This is where I want to be. And then his stomach starts to churn within him. He's like, oh, I don't know if I actually want to be here now that I'm here. But I'm here. And his spirit is giving him what for internally, convicting him. But he is either stuck in that place and doesn't have the means to get out, which I don't really believe, or he chooses to stay in it. And Peter tells us he was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, listen, he was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and he heard. Now, brothers and sisters, we are to be in the world, but we very much are not to be of the world. And here's Lot, a righteous man. He chose a portion. It was the wrong choice. He went further and he was sick. Just sin sick, soul troubled, living with deep conviction, tormenting his righteous soul overseeing their lawless deeds over and over and over. Don't miss it. You can be God's man or woman and still choose wrongly because you're not trusting in God's purposes. Your soul can be in turmoil, which is God's gracious way of convicting us until we relent. Until we relent and we, we let go of being in control. 
And we say, God, I'm going to trust you. The contrast, Abraham and flocks and herds, too. But Lot's flocks and herds and desires had him. Abram had all of these other things, this wealth and these ways of life, but Lot's had control over his heart. What has control over you? What has you? Is it a title, a status, a dollar figure, a way of living, a fear? What has you? Remember, if you believe that God's discipline is for your good, you, you go back to Bethel and you call, about, call out on the name of the Lord and you repent. So as a peacemaker who trusted God's purposes, Abram allowed what was in Lot to come out. It was already in him. The circumstances just allowed it to come out and he separated between them. Now, I'm going to do a quick summary of, of chapter 14. We're looking at chapters 13 and chapters 14 today. But what happens in chapters 14, by the way, if you ever want to practice um, reading phonetically, uh, chapter 14 is a great place to start, okay? You just read these, you know, Amraphel. That one's okay. Shinar, okay, all right. Shader Leomar. I mean, this is chapter 14. I'm not making fun of the Bible. These are true kings. One of the things that you learn about historical narratives, there are real names, real places, real timelines, real lineages. And there's a real battle that happens here that we read about in chapter 14. Lot is down in Sodom where he chose to be. And at one point, some kings come and they attack Sodom. And they take all the stuff from Sodom, including Lot. That's what uh, about verse 12 tells us. They take Lot. Uh, the son of Abram's brother. And so there's a couple people that escape. One of the dudes that escapes finds his way to Abram and is like, hey, man, they got your nephew. I don't know if Abram was like, the Lord told me to go and leave all my family behind. I should have left the nephew. I shouldn't have let him come with me because he's been nothing. So Abram cracks his knuckles. And he gets his 318 soldiers, 318 men. And he says, okay, we're going to go get him. And he outwits them. They, they attack at night. They flank them from the, well, they flank them from the sides, right? And so they flank them and it's at night. They attack and they win. And they win. Now, in those days when the king won a battle, they were, they were given the, the spoils from the victory. And so we're moving at about 90 miles an hour here. So he, he has the, the right, if you will, to have this victory. But I want you to look at verses 17 of chapter 14 with me for a minute. After his return from the, from the defeat of Shadr Leomar, the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, the, the king of Salem, brought out wine and bread. He was priest of God most high. And here's what Melchizedek says. Blessed or blessed be Abraham by God, Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a 10th of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, a different king says, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourselves. In other words, I want my people back, but you can have everything else. I don't care about all that. You, you won, you rescued us. It's yours for the keeping. But Abram said to this king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord. Now that's not, 
I've lifted my fist to the Lord. That's I've sworn to the Lord. I've made an oath. I've made a promise to the Lord. God most high possessor of heaven and earth that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours. Lest you should say I've made Abraham rich. I will take nothing but what the men have, what, what the young men have already eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let the others take their share. Right here, because Abram is prioritizing God's purposes, he prizes only God's blessing. I want approval from one, he says. God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And if he wants me to have anything else, because he's God most high, because he's the possessor of heaven and earth, I know he'll give it to me. And I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to handle it on my own. I've learned from my past. I want one thing, the blessing of God. There's a picture of two kings here. One, whose name is Melchizedek. Oh, love to talk so much more about Melchizedek. There's a lot you can say. Hebrews 7 talks about Melchizedek. There's a whole lot. Melchizedek points us forward to Christ because the writer of Hebrews connects to Melchizedek. But basically on these two points, he was a king and he was a priest. And that begins pointing us forward to what God is doing in redemptive history or in God's story of salvation. Some might say that Melchizedek was a, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. I don't believe that's true. I think he's a real king that we just don't get much information about. The way he's connected to Christ is that he's a king and that he's a priest. How do we know? Abram gave him a tenth of everything, and he received it in a way that was somehow honoring to the Lord. It was right, and it was appropriate, and he received it. And he gave a blessing to Abram. Now look at verses 19 and 20 as we see this simple sufficiency, the simple reality that God's blessing is enough. Melchizedek blessed him and he said, blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. He honored the king who brought God's blessing because he prized only the blessing of God. Right? Sometimes we say things like, if I, if I was in the Garden of Eden and God had put me there and said, hey, you can have everything except that one thing. I think, oh, I wouldn't have done what Adam and Eve did. No way. Right? Oh, if I was Lot and I had the choice, oh, I would have deferred to Abram. I would have done the right thing there. Here's the problem. I know myself too well. And I think you do too. Not me, yourself. He's like, oh yeah, you definitely would have made the wrong call. No, no, no. You're, you're... <laughs> That's true, fine, but let's deal with your own hearts right here, okay? <laughs> I know when I choose the temporary over the eternal. I know how many times that I don't believe that God's discipline is for my good, and so I get frustrated with God. I get angry with the Lord that he's not tripping all over himself to tell me, hey, pal, it's no biggie, I got you. I got you at the cross. Just do what you want to do and I'll take care of you. I mean, I think the Lord should trip over himself at times to respond to me that way, except for Paul says, 
That's a terrible way to think. He says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Meganeto, it's the strongest negative term in the Greek language. By no means, never, no way, nada, nada. How can we who died to sin still live in it? I know when I would choose vengeance over peacemaking. I know when I would choose just to vent rather than withholding what I want to say in my own sin because I want people to hurt at times. Because I hurt. It's easier than saying a soft answer turns away wrath. But if I prioritize God's purposes, I want to be a peacemaker. Which means I, I let go of what I want. I let go of vengeance. Because God has poured out his vengeance on his son. Not a drop of wrath comes to Matthew, Evan McGee. Not a drop. And so do you. You know when you choose work over prioritizing the spiritual health and growth of your family, right? You know when you choose maybe control over your children out of fear that they're not going to be just perfect, just right. Or you know, conversely, when you choose to be lax with your children with an interest of being their friend over being their spiritual parent, their real physical parent whose job it is to train them in righteousness. And at times that means allowing them to experience the consequences of their own sin, not rescuing them from that you know when you prize the applause and the reward of a world system over the simple sufficiency of the blessing of god which for those who love god is enough child of god is it it is enough to receive and to prize just god's blessing maybe to say it differently it is enough to prize everything in this world that God bless, God's blessing brings. Because he is the possessor of heaven and earth. Psalm 84 verses 1 and 2 and 10 says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh They sing for joy to the living God for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Lot chose to dwell in the tents of wickedness and his stomach just churned. He tormented himself, this righteous man living away from the blessing of God. I don't want that for any of you or myself. So we live accordance with the promise. For Abram, it was the promise of a land and a people. For you and me, it's the promise, the hope of eternity in glory with the Lord. This is not our home. I love the picture of tents. Yes, it was their culture, but but they were moving around. They were sojourners. You and I, Peter tells us, we are sojourners and strangers, aliens in this world. Do you feel like an alien? Are you getting a little too cushy? too comfortable with the world. If you were standing at the parting of the waters, looking down on this stream, you and the Lord standing there, looking down at these drops of water coming, one's going to lead and go this direction. Another's going to lead and go that direction. 
with the choices that are before you now. I'm not talking about your past right now. I'm talking about what you do, what you do from this moment forward. You've got a decision that's traveling down this stream. Is it going to go eastward toward a life like Sodom? Or is it going to go westward toward a life of peace, a life of blessing, a life walking in fellowship with the Lord? Say, so, well, I'll think about that another time. I don't want to deal with that right now. Okay, that's your choice. What's the one area where God is calling you to prioritize his purposes in your life today? We apply our faith to it. We prioritize God's purposes in all of our choices. Why? For his glory, because we're prizing only his blessing.